Well, let me invite you to open your copy of God's Word to Revelation chapter 13. There's a a copy under the chair in front of you if you came without one today, or use your phone to dial up one if uh, you so desire. As uh, you're on your way there, let me mention a couple resources I want to encourage you to consider as we continue our study in the book of Revelation. One is this one I've held up several times. It's called Let's Study Revelation by uh, uh, Derek Thomas, a p- uh, pastor in Columbia, South Carolina, I believe. And uh, just a very simple and straightforward explanation of Revelation kind of follows along the line we've been taking through the book. I also want to mention this resource to you, Table Talk Magazine. This is uh, something many of you get already. This is November of uh, last year, and it is talking about this very section we're at. So if you're a Table Talk subscriber, dig out November of 2020 and and, uh, use it to uh, remind yourself of these truths and the point of view we've been taking throughout this series. So we start a new chapter today, Revelation chapter 13, and boy is it a corker, if I could uh, express it like that. (laughs) Uh, What's a corker? Well, you'll find out. Uh, (laughs) Revelation 13, verses 1 to 10, let's uh, find that passage in our copy of God's Word, and let me read it to us as we begin this morning. Hear the word of the Lord. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads and with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words. And it was allowed to exercise authority for forty-two months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive to captivity, he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here's a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. God's holy word, let's uh, ask for help into this tricky text today as we begin. Father, we do uh, pray for your help. Boy, Opinions are all over the place when it comes to these 10 verses. Uh, So just let us be straightforward and simple and clear today, as clear as we possibly can be in describing the words that are before us. 
Uh, please help me to preach clearly and think clearly and as a congregation. Give us listening ears. And like the Bereans, let us study these things on our own to determine if they're true. Help us now, Lord Christ, we pray in your name. Amen. Well, I mentioned this is a new chapter for us, pretty much right in the middle of the book of Revelation. And as we turn to this new chapter, we also turn to one of the most controversial chapters in the book of Revelation. Uh, interpretations of this chapter tend to be on the, on the bizarre side, and they're often fueled by speculation, sometimes wild speculation. Uh, pastor and author Derek Thomas, whose book I just mentioned to you, says, Few things have fueled more speculation than the biblical witness to the Antichrist, and especially the testimony given by John in Revelation 13 to a beast identified by the cryptogram 666. All kinds of bizarre interpretations are current. He is correct. Uh, it is uh, prone to the bizarre. Chapter 13, uh, if you've been with us through the series, uh, falls into the fourth section of Revelation. You see the four behind me, and many consider this to be the very heart, the very center of the book of Revelation. Uh, remember that these four sections that you see behind me, they don't, they don't follow in sequential order. First one, and then two, and three, and then four, uh, they don't follow in a strict chronological pattern. They all describe the same period of time, the last days, the time between Christ's first and second comings. And so uh, chapters 1 through 3, John discussed the seven churches, and then time ran out. And so he went back to start over with the seven seals. The seven seals continue throughout this age, and he ends the Red X indicates that it concludes with a description of the Lord's return. The seven trumpets, the same thing, goes back to the, uh, the beginning of that time period, describes seven trumpets, seven judgments of God that take place on the unbelieving world. And then finally, we come to the holy war in chapter 12. It's considered the background, uh, the backstory behind all these other sections of Revelation. It, it is really a behind-the-scenes look at all these other things, and that's why it's found in the very center of the book. And as we'll see, and obviously there are three more sections after the Holy War, 5, 6, and 7. Well, um, as I said, this describes forces operating behind uh, world events, uh, described as the theological center of the book. Again, Derek Thomas, indeed, in some ways, it can be thought of as the very key to the entire book. And so far in uh, this uh, middle section, the, the Holy War, we've seen the devil's assault on God's covenant people Israel in chapter 12, and we read about the devil's attempt, the dragon's attempt to destroy her child, the Messiah of Israel, Jesus Christ. Uh, and then uh, failing to destroy Christ and, and defeated by Christ at the cross, the devil then turns his attention to Christ's church and Christ's followers. This is what we saw in verses 13 through 17 of, of chapter 12. And as we come now to 13, 
we discover two of the instruments Satan uses in his attack on the church. The beast from the sea and the beast from the earth. So our purpose today is to gain an understanding of this beast from the sea. What what does Scripture say about the beast? And as we just try to take an honest look at what the words say and tie it together with some other passages, we want to understand the nature of this beast, but we'll also gain an understanding of a world events that, that have taken place and a world events that are taking place right now as, as Scripture gives us insight into uh, the scheme of history. Remember, John wrote this letter to comfort the churches in Asia Minor. And uh, he said these things are coming soon, and so this is written to explain to them uh, the forces behind world events. So our purpose, again today, is to understand this beast from the sea, uh, and by doing so, gain an understanding of world events, uh, understanding uh, these characters in the holy war gives us a, 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 a grasp of the spiritual realities that are taking place uh, in the world uh, behind the scenes. Well, there are three features of the beast from the sea that we want to examine this morning. Uh, John mentions three features of this first uh, beast. Uh, the first feature John gives us is characteristics of the beast. He describes for us what this beast is like. And there are three characteristics uh, that I want to point out to you in verses 1 through 4. The first characteristic of the beast is its satanic nature. Uh, the beast uh, is satanic in its nature. It's satanic in its origin. It's satanic in its appearance. And it's satanic in its power. Let's look, first of all, at the origin of the beast. It's satanic in its origin. Uh, notice the very last phrase of verse 17, which I neglected to read to you as we began today. The very last sentence says, And he stood on the sand of the sea. And then verse 1, And I saw a beast rising out of the sea. This tells us our passage today is clearly connected to the events of chapter 12 that we studied last Sunday. Last week we, we read that Satan went off to make war uh, against uh, Christ's followers. And our passage this morning tells us how Satan does that. Chapter 12 gave us a general statement of Satan's attention, intentions. And chapter 13 tells us more specifically how he carries out his intentions and the instruments he uses to make war against God's people. One instrument he uses to make war on God's people is a beast, a wild animal that rises out of the sea. And you might recall throughout the Old Testament, and beyond the Old Testament, throughout the ancient world, the sea was considered a source of evil. Uh, last Sunday I described, uh, we read how a flood comes out of the dragon's mouth in an attempt to, to kill the woman. Uh, we uh, read passages from David's life 
and David describes uh, a flood of waters, a torrent, and that refers to his enemies trying to overwhelm and destroy him. And so as we see this reference to the sea, another reference to a, a great flood of surging and roaring waters, uh, it's the same line of thought. It represents roaring and surging of nations and, and governments of the world. Isaiah describes this in Isaiah 17 uh, as, Ah, the thunder of many peoples, they thunder like the thundering of the sea, and ah, the roar of nations, they roar like the roaring of mighty waters. And then in chapter 57, Isaiah says, but the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up mire and dirt. This is what one source, how one source describes the sea. He says it's a symbol of the agitated surface of unbelieving humanity, and especially of the seething cauldron of national and social life out of which great historical movements of the world arise. So the sea represents unbelieving humanity. And this is the origin of the beast. It's satanic in its origin, rising from the sea of unbelieving humanity. Well, it's not only satanic in its origin, it's satanic in its appearance as well. And that's the next thing we see. Because verse 1 goes on to say, And I saw a beast rising out of the sea, with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns, and blasphem blasphemous names on its head. That's how the dragon was described last week. Look across to chapter 12, verse 3. Uh, excuse me. Uh, yes, verse 3. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon, which is the devil, Satan, with seven heads, and ten horns, and on its heads seven diadems. Only a minor difference in detail, uh, but the beast we're studying in chapter 13, very similar in appearance to the dragon of chapter 12. And the explanation of the beast's appearance will, of course, be similar to the dragon's. Ten horns it has, an indication of immense power. We're talking about animal horns, like uh, wild oxen, uh, Texas longhorns. And, and the explanation of, of these horns is described later uh, as powerful kings. Daniel 7 also mentions the horns are kings. And then seven heads. Uh, seven heads links it to an ancient sea monster called Leviathan or Rahab. Um, the ESV study Bible says an ancient symbol, Leviathan that is, this sea monster, is an ancient symbol of evil in all its monstrous horror, attested in Ugaritic myths that describe a powerful dragon-like deity. The Reformation study Bible, the Old Testament employs this image of a multi-headed serpent to denote evil autocratic powers. Chapter 17 also describes these heads as kings. Ten diadems. Uh, diadems are royal crowns. They represent the authority to rule. And so this beast that rises out of the sea also has uh, authority to rule his domain. He rules over the population of unbelievers, as we'll see in just a minute, uh, those who dwell on earth. And finally, it says the beast has blasphemous names on its heads. 
these rulers and kings through whom the beast operates have contempt for the things of God and ridicule all that is holy. An example would be the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire's motto uh, was Dominus et Deus, forgive my Latin, uh, which means Lord and God. This is how the Roman emperors desired to be known, Lord and God. Well, secondly, this beast is satanic in its appearance. One more thing to see here, it's satanic in its power. Glance down uh, to the very end of verse 2 in your Bible. It says there, and to it, to the beast that is, the dragon gave his power in his throne and great authority. That reference to his throne takes us all the way back to Revelation chapter 2, where Christ addresses the church at Pergamum. And to the church at Pergamum, this is what Christ says. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the, in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. So this verse from chapter 2 tells us that Satan was operating through the ruling authorities of that town, Pergamum. And no doubt there were many rulers throughout the ancient world through whom Satan operated. Through these thrones, uh, verse 2 of chapter 13 tells us that the beast will possess great authority. In other words, Satan will give the beast authority over cities and kingdoms of this world. Remember that Satan is called the ruler of this world by Jesus three times in the book of John. Not planet Earth, uh, per se, but uh, the world system we live in, populated by unbelievers. The beast is satanic in its power. It receives its power and authority from the dragon, Satan. So, this is the first characteristic of the beast, satanic in its nature. But we want to press on, because there's a, another important characteristic to see, uh, and that is its many forms. The second characteristic of the beast is its many forms. It's taken many forms throughout history. Again, we're reading a description not of something that's going to take place in a seven-year period in the future called the tribulation. The beast is, is uh, something we have seen throughout this age between the first and second comings of Christ. And no doubt appearances of the beast will escalate as we approach the day of his return. But let me point out the, difference, uh, the description of how it appears in different forms. Look at verse 2 one more time. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's. And its mouth was like a lion's. Uh, John is drawing directly from Daniel chapter 7 when he gives us this description of the different animal parts. And in Daniel chapter 7, the main difference is uh, Daniel's describing four animals there. And it's though John has joined them all together here uh, in, in one beast. 
they're combined to represent all the world powers that are hostile to Jesus Christ. Uh, John has what I would say kitbashed all these different animals into one. And this one beast represents all the kingdoms opposed to Jesus in his rule. Listen to one uh, Bible scholar, William Hendrickson, comment on this. The beast represents every form of worldly government which persecutes the church whenever and wherever it appears in history. The four beasts of Daniel's vision have been combined into one beast here. This composite beast cannot symbolize merely one empire or government. It must indicate all anti-Christian governments. He concludes, The seaborne beast symbolizes the persecuting power of Satan embodied in all the nations and governments of the world throughout history. The point is, the beast is a recurring thing. Uh, the beast appears again and again and again. John's readers would have been thinking about Rome, my parents' generation, uh, Joseph Stalin, Henry Kissinger, uh, to name just two of the candidates for the beast. Perhaps uh, you are thinking of some others. I'm sure Adolf Hitler was in there somewhere, probably. Uh, but the beast is a recurring thing. Governments that rise throughout history to oppose Christ. It's, it's described again in verse 3. Look at verse 3 with me. And, and this is its recurring nature again uh, depicted. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound. Again, uh, later the heads represent kings. And so one of these kings seemed to have a mortal wound, perhaps fatal, but it says, but its mortal wound was healed and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. Now, there's a wide range of opinion, uh, even amongst conservative and reformed scholars, about what this is referring to. I believe the best explanation is just another description of the beast as a recurring thing. In other words, uh, it could be that this refers to Emperor Nero, one of the worst uh, Roman emperors in history whose nickname was actually, and he guesses, the beast. And nicknamed the beast by his own people. Well, Nero committed suicide. And so for a brief period of time, persecution against Christians uh, came to an end. Uh, Nero made uh, Christians the scapegoat for the, the Roman fire. Uh, but... Another emperor followed, and I believe after that, uh, Emperor Domitian became the Roman emperor. And under Domitian, even greater and systematic persecution arose against the Christians. Here's the point. Uh, it seems that the persecuting powers of secular governments ebb and flow throughout history. In one place it might die down, only for it to spring up again somewhere else. Let me again quote Derek Thomas to you. The beast represents political and secular forces that seek, however subtly, to destroy the testimony of Jesus Christ and oppose the building of the kingdom of Christ on earth. It has many shapes, many horns, now taking one form and now another. I believe this is correct. Our scripture reading this morning seemed to indicate 
something of a similar nature. Let me remind you of a passage we read today. 1 John 2.18 says, Children, it is the last hour. Again, how long is the last hour? Well, so far, it's lasted about 2,021 years since the ascension of Christ. It will last until the return of Christ. Um, he says, Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. And then two verses later, we read this verse in John, 1 John 2. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. These anti-Christian forces, in all their various forms, are signs that we're living in the last days. And again, that stretches from the first and second comings of Christ. And these anti-Christian forces have taken many shapes throughout history. There may be, and likely will be, one form of anti-Christ in particular that arises before Christ returns. 2 Thessalonians 2 talks about that man, calls him the man of lawlessness, the man of sin, who must be revealed. Again, who will that be? Speculation is as long as the day, down through the ideas of ages about who this might be, and again, some of that wild speculation. L listen to, uh, uh, I like this comment. Dr. Joel Beakey kind of pulls it all together. Scripture also tells us that at the end of time, the Antichrist will come, who is the epitome of rebellion against God. This may be a person or an institution, but John's point is that the spirit of Antichrist is evident throughout history. And so the second characteristic of the beast, some of you might find this a little hard to swallow, is that it takes various forms throughout history and could wind up in possibly one extreme uh, form, the Antichrist, before Christ returns. Well, two characteristics. Let me mention one more to you. It, the beast is satanic in its nature. Uh, the beast has many forms. It's political and national and secular, and it rises against Christians. Uh, and then third, this third characteristic is its worship. Uh, how it is worshipped. The nations of the world, in awe of the beast's might, bow down to its authority. Look at verse 3 with me in your copy of the word. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And so just insert yourself into the position of John's readers. They would have been thinking of Rome. Uh, Rome enforced its rule not by uh, allegiance, but by coercion. No one could withstand Rome's brute force. You did bow the knee to Rome. And perhaps they would have thought of Rome. Who can fight against Rome? Who is like Rome? Who is like the beast? We can think of other na uh, nations that have arisen where people seem to get sucked into that nation's reign and, and uh, uh, ideologies. Uh, listen to Dr. Doug Kelly. He mentions one in particular 
that I think you'll be able to identify. When the beast, the powers of evil, seem to be running the land, it's surprising how quickly decent people will go along with the most wicked political regimes. They tend to worship the beast, and one could use 1930s Germany as a tragic illustration. Well put. People bought into Adolf Hitler hook, line, and sinker. We don't have to go back that far, though, do we? Can you think of times in recent history where people from our nations have followed a leader hook, line, and sinker? I think of two in uh, recent presidents where similar worship took place. I'm not identifying these men as the beast, understand. I'm just saying it's that kind of worship that uh, the beast inspires. Who can stand against the brute force? Uh, they're powerful and they bow down uh, to this beast in awe of the beast's mind. They can do no wrong. Uh, uh, I don't want to be specific. I, I'm Anyway, just fill in the blanks. You, you know what it looks like. So these are the characteristics of the beast. And John has given us three characteristics to start off with. It's satanic nature. It's many forms. Again, that might be the idea, harder for some of you to swallow, that the beast is not just a one person at the end of the age, but the beast has steadily recurred throughout history between the time of Christ's comings. Third characteristic is, is worship, how people fawn over government and its power. Well, there's another feature of this beast that John describes, and I want to point it out to you uh, as well. We go now from the characteristics of the beast to the authority of the beast. We've already heard that uh, the beast receives its authority, authority from Satan, but there's even more to it than that. Um, we read about his authority next. And what we read about the beast's authority is that his authority is limited. Uh, his authority is restrained. Um, beginning in verse 5 and following, I want, I'm going to read these. Listen for the passive voice. Passive is not, uh, he ran down the street. Passive would be, he was run over while he, something happened, that's a terrible example, I apologize. <laughs> the action happens to the object of the verb. Uh, the, the object doesn't perform the action. Some of you have no idea what I'm talking about. <laughs> Look what it says, uh, beginning in verse 5. And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words. And it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling. That is those who dwell in heaven. And it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Certainly the beast does possess power and authority that the dragon has given to it, Satan. But even the dragon's power and authority is derived power. Uh, the beast 
and the dragon both possess limited power and authority. Together, they have no power of their own, but only what God allows. Very, very important. The dragon and the beast have derived power, meaning it doesn't come from their own inherent power. Anything they're able to do, they're only able to do because of what God allows. And God, God does allow them a measure of power and authority. I, I like Martin, Worth, uh, Martin Luther's phrase. I've said it once. I've probably said it a million times. There is a devil but it is God's devil. What does he mean? He meant that the devil can do nothing without God's explicit permission. The devil is a created being, and God is not. And so anything the, the dragon or the beast have authority to do is what God allows them to do. They're Given authority, the beast, in this case, is given authority in three areas. First, the beast has authority to speak. He is allowed, uh, or it is allowed, to slander the character of God and his people. Again, I want to point you back to verse 5. And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words. Uh, then verse 6, it opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling. That is those who dwell in heaven. This blasphemy, slander, you could think of it, speaking evil about God. Uh, the beast speaks evil about God and against all those in whom God dwells, which would be his church. Think of, think of the rulers and governments throughout history that have put themselves in the place of God like these verses describe. I think of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar, that name rolls off your tongue, doesn't it? Uh, Daniel chapter 4, the best example. I encourage you to go take a look later. But Nebuchadnezzar... Uh, ruler of the, the Neo-Babylonian Empire is standing atop his roof and he's gazing out at his kingdom. Uh, and all that he surveys is his. And he says these words in Daniel 4, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty, and he's got his thumbs in his suspenders because they wore suspenders in Babylon at that period of time. <laughs> Immediately humbled by God, loses his mind and eats grass like an ox. But the dew of heaven drenches him until it says at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. 
And that same kind of blasphemy we hear repeated again and again across history, do we not? Only we wish that Nebuchadnezzar's condition would follow the people who say it. Uh, Again, listen to this man. Throughout this entire gospel age, the governments of this world place themselves on the throne, claim for themselves the authority that belongs to God, and blaspheme the God of heaven. So the beast is given authority, first of all, to speak. Second, the beast is given authority to persecute. Uh, Nations and governments are given limited authority to persecute God's people throughout this age. Again, let me turn you to verse 5. The second half is what I want you to see. The beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. And then jump to uh, down to verse 7. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And throughout these last days, ever since Christ has ascended to, the, to his Father's right hand, God has allowed the governments of this world limited authority to persecute believers. And in some cases, he's even granted them authority to take the lives of those believers, as this last phrase in verse 7 indicates, uh, 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 to conquer them, uh, make war on the saints, and to conquer them. Um, That's something that we see described throughout the book of Acts. We've heard it mentioned in Revelation. And we know that many of our brothers and sisters in Christ across the world have lost their lives just for naming Jesus. They've become martyrs simply because of their faith in Christ. So the beast has authority, secondly, to persecute. And lastly, the beast has authority to rule unbelievers. Uh, uh, it's granted limited authority to rule the world of unbelievers. The, the Verse 7, uh, looking at the very middle of verse 7, and authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. That, that um, uh, fourfold phrase is used to describe a great host of people in this book. Uh, sometimes believers, sometimes unbelievers, unbelievers here, because the next phrase in verse 8 says, and all who dwell on earth will worship it. It's not talking about every man, woman, and child on the planet when it talks about all who dwell on the earth. Uh, John uses has used that phrase throughout this book to refer specifically to those who have made their home here. Those who've settled down on earth. In other words, this is a phrase, those who dwell on earth, that refers to non-Christians, to unbelievers. Satan is given authority to rule uh, them, just as, uh, excuse me, the beast is given authority to rule them, just as Satan uh, has that and possesses that authority as well. Jesus, again, refers to him as the ruler of this world, this evil world system. What it doesn't include, what is omitted from this group, what is not described in this verse, is you, if you know Christ. You are not one of those who dwell on earth. Because where's your home? Well, one person knows where their home is. (laughs) So whoever you were, you're not part of this verse. 
We are not those who dwell on earth. Uh, and so we see his authority to rule us is excluded. His authority to control us is excluded. So, so this beast has authority? Yes. Uh, authority to do great harm? Yes. But it is limited authority. It is derived authority. No power in and of himself, only what is given to him by God. Authority to speak against God's people and against God, to persecute God's people, and to rule unbelievers. Now, let's just stop. Wow, I want to wipe my forehead. Boy, this can be unsettling stuff, can it? You read about this stuff. The beast has given authority. Governments have authority to persecute and and martyr Christians. And, you know, I know I've heard this. Uh, I've heard rumors of this taking place in America for the past, oh gosh, 30 years. Oh, it's coming. Oh, it's coming. That's what I always hear. I don't know if you're thinking that. But maybe you're a little nervous by this. I can hear some of your hearts beating. You're thumping a little loud and, whoa, you don't like what this says. Oh, there's a possibility our government could become more beastly than it is and really bring down the hammer on the church. Yeah, I suppose that's possible. Well, it's for this reason that we have to move on to the third feature. Because we really need encouragement after reading and studying these first two features about the beast. You know, the beast doesn't rule. We know who rules, right? Chapter 5? Remember chapter 5? Who is the ruler of this universe? And that later chapter where he's pictured as one foot on the earth and one foot on the sea, sovereign over the whole business. Jesus Christ. So we need encouragement from him as we think about the beast and as we see this figure that reoccurs through history. So the third feature we find, happily enough, encouragement against the beast or encouragement in the face of the beast or in light of the beast. And there are two things that bring us encouragement uh, as we face this new opponent to Christ's church. The first encouragement is God's sovereign choice. I'm talking about His sovereign choice and our salvation. And His sovereign choice in our salvation preserves believers through any persecution they might experience from the beast. Look at verse 8 with me. It's very important. And all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. The book of life that John refers to in this verse is the heavenly roster of those chosen by God before the creation of the world. Please look carefully. Written before the foundation of the world. Or Peter 
Uh, rather, Paul said it like this in Ephesians, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Before God created the world. That's a long time ago. He chose some for salvation through Jesus Christ. And if you have trusted Jesus Christ, we're talking about you. That God chose you before the foundation of the world. It's as certain as if he wrote your name down in a book. You know, when I forget things, I tend to write them down. I, I use the uh, memo on my iPhone. Some of you take an actual pen and an actual piece of paper, and you write things in cursive. We write those things down to remember them, and I don't think there's an actual book. It, it, it's, it's, a, it's a human illustration. It's uh, we write down those things that are most important to us. Of course, God is all-knowing. Uh, his wisdom is unsearchable. Uh, who can understand the mind of God? It's as if God needed to write anything down. Those chosen by God for salvation were then given to the Son before the foundation of the world. It's as if uh, uh, the Puritans describe it as a holy conference that took place before creation. And the Son agreed to pay for the sins of these people. Those whom God had chosen for salvation are given to the Son, and the Son agrees to pay for their sins on the cross. To ransom them, to, to redeem them. Uh, Jesus says in John 17, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you since you have given Him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given Him. And those that were given to Him by the Father, these He laid down His life for. As Paul tells us in Ephesians 5, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Those chosen by the Father were redeemed by the Son. And those chosen by the Father, redeemed by the Son, are then in time given a new disposition by the Spirit so that they can repent and believe. This is described in Titus 3.5. He saved us not because of works done by us in, in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration, even renewal by the Spirit. And it's the work of God's Spirit renewing the heart that makes unbelievers able and willing to turn from sin to trust in the atoning death of Christ as the, the payment for their sin. Only by the Spirit does this take place. Those chosen by the Father, given to the Son, and whom the Son redeems, and whom the Spirit quickens and regenerates and makes alive to trust Christ, these 
are guarded by God until the day of redemption. There's no wiggling out of his fingers. You cannot slip if you know Christ. Listen to 1 Peter. You who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Oh, what if God gets tired of holding on to me? <laughs> Isaiah, he does not weary or grow faint. So, I say all this to say that oh, this is what keeps us from the beast because of God's sovereign choice and salvation. Believers will not turn away from God to worship or follow the beast. They will be kept by him for the day of redemption. There's no danger of, of you slipping off to worship the beast. It's true we can stumble and think more highly of a government or a government official than we should. And we should repent of those, of that beast-like worship when we do. God keeps us. Table Talk magazine uh, said it like this. What makes our regeneration permanent is not our perseverance, but God's preservation. Ultimately, it's not how diligent we persevere. And persevere we must but how well God preserves us in the faith. And so if you're reading about the beast and this makes you nervous, then take heart, friend, because God's sovereign choice will keep you. You will not slip. There's a second encouragement, and that's God's sovereign plan. Uh, God's sovereign plan is another, a second encouragement. And this is simply to say that all the events of our lives are ordered and planned by an all-knowing, all-wise God. Look at verse 9. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Who are these verses for? Well, this last phrase tells us clearly, here's a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. These are written for believers, for those who've trusted Christ. Well, if that's the case, what is the beginning of verse 10? Uh talking about. That makes me feel a little nervous as I read those words. Uh, what's this talking about? If anyone is to be taken captive to captivity, he goes. If anyone is to be slain with a sword, with the sword must he be slain. It's saying that there will be casualties in the holy war. There will be casualties in the holy war. There already have been for centuries. 
But understand this, John says, any captivity or casualty in the holy war, it's not ultimately brought about by the beast. It's brought about ultimately by the sovereign purpose of our all-knowing, all-powerful, and all-wise God. The events of our lives, even the tragic ones, even the ones we suffer in the holy war, are ordained for us, are planned for us by the sovereign purpose of an all-wise God. Listen to Psalm 139 where David affirms this, Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. And when David says days here, it's not merely a reference to the number of days you're going to live. He's referring to the events that take place on those days. They're, again, all written down, so to speak. The all-knowing mind of God knows and ordains what will take place on those days. And to make this even clearer, God's Word says in Ephesians 1.11, In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him, who works all things according to the counsel of his will. What does this mean? It means this. It means that the beast, should we ever have a serious encounter with the beast, it is not the beast in charge of our lives. Our sovereign Lord governs our days and the events on them. Should we, should we find ourselves jailed by the beast? Should we re be required to lay down our lives for the name of Christ? These things will not ultimately come about by the will of the beast. They will come through the plan of an all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-wise God. So this man says it like this, the persecuted can know that the last word is not with the persecutors. This is not fatalism, but the conviction that God is sovereign and works out his good and perfect will. This is the encouragement you and I need in the face of the beast who has already been at work, who we will see again. God's sovereign choice keeps us and God's sovereign plan governs all the events of our lives. So, the point has been to understand this new adversary that we've been introduced to in the Holy War, this beast from the sea, and seeing, getting a glimpse of what he's like helps us understand what we've seen in history, I think. And understanding the beast like this, like this also helps us understand what's taking place throughout the world right now. And we can see places where the beast is at work. And there are three features of this beast that we've looked at today. The characteristics of the beast to begin with, and we saw three. It's satanic nature, it's many forms, it's worship. We saw the authority of the beast described, authority to speak and persecute and to rule unbelievers, but lastly, this encouragement that the sovereign choice of God keeps us and will not allow us 
to slip or worship this hideous thing. And God's sovereign plan will govern our lives even if we encounter the beast. He rules, not the beast. Let me conclude us with, with prayer. Father, I pray that you'd allow the truth of this to sink into our, lives, our, our hearts. This uh, difficult, often confusing and complex passage, I pray that you would take the truth of this and, and apply it to our hearts. Give us a grasp of how you're operating in the world, how you're allowing the beast to operate in the world. But let us cling to these encouragements. You have chosen us and will not let go. You are guarding us until the day of redemption. And Lord, you govern all our days. Every event that takes place are written in your book before one of them comes to be. We praise you, God, that you are all-knowing all-powerful, and all-wise. Work uh, your will in us because of Jesus Christ and by your good spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.